This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we're sharing an update on cardiac risk factors and COVID-19 by Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist. This talk and others like it will be available as part of the 94th Annual Clinical Reviews. You can access this year's course online starting in October. Click the link in the episode's description box to get notified when it opens. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Steve Kopetsky, a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a preventive cardiologist. Today, for the next few moments, we'll be speaking about preventive cardiology. And there are so many risk factors in so little time. But what's happened to us all in the last few months is we have new risk factors and new diseases. And so we'll be talking quite a bit today about COVID and how it affects the heart because I think there's some great lessons to learn from this. All cardiologists, all caregivers, and all patients are learning. Here are my conflicts of interest that uh, really have nothing germane to what we'll be speaking about today. Any medications I speak about will be uh, data-driven. I'd like to talk for the next few moments about preventive cardiology and specifically COVID-19. There are risk factors for severe infection and death with COVID-19 that directly relate to cardiac diseases. There are preventive behaviors that we all know about that directly relate to cardiac diseases. There's preventive treatment for COVID-19 complications. There are uh, effects on the heart also that I'd like to talk about. And then there may be actually a silver lining to the COVID cloud that we can all learn something from to help take care of ourselves and our patients. So if you look at COVID-19 infections and what comorbidity is the most lethal comorbidity to have when you have a COVID-19 infection. If you look at a recent meta-analysis that just came out in the last couple of weeks of almost 50,000 patients with confirmed COVID-19, the comorbidity that was the most lethal was cardiovascular disease underlying. So those patients that came in with CV disease, got a COVID infection, that's the most lethal uh, combination. Respiratory diseases and hypertension were, were later. So if it's the most lethal combination or comorbidity to have, what about preventive behaviors? We've all been taught about these preventive behaviors for COVID over the last few months. If you look at the preventive behaviors that we do and look at the types of underlying diseases that we have, which comorbidity, which patient with which underlying disease is least likely to practice preventive behaviors. And let me tell you um, where this data came from. It was from recent phone calls that replicated a microcosm of the United States for gender, ethnicity, race, uh, age, etc. The chronic diseases they looked at, underlying chronic diseases, were allergies, cardiometabolic disease, immunodeficiencies, mental health, being overweight or obese, and finally respiratory diseases. And then the 10 healthy behaviors, we've all known about these for the last few months, to avoid crowds, high-risk people, avoid restaurants, cancel activities, social distancing of six feet. If you're unwell, stay home, wash your hands, wear a mask, etc. Well, if you look at these underlying comorbidities, these chronic diseases, there is one group that stands out in terms of having unhealthy preventive COVID behavior. And in eight out of 10 categories, 
one chronic disease group had the least healthy behaviors. Who was that? Cardiometabolic diseases. So that's somewhat surprising that uh, cardiometabolic disease would be there until you think about it. In cardiometabolic disease, 90% of it is preventable. And a lot of these underlying other comorbidities they looked at, like allergies, like immunodeficiency, like mental health, those aren't so much preventable, uh, but things like cardiovascular diseases are. So maybe the cardiovascular disease patient has cardiovascular disease because they aren't practicing preventive behavior and they're more likely to have complications with COVID-19 because they aren't practicing preventive behaviors. So one of the things that we know that uh, may be helpful is shown in these two studies, which came out in the last couple of weeks, is chronic statin use. It seems to reduce all-cause mortality in patients that have COVID-19. This doesn't prevent COVID, it lowers the mortality. So let me show you the data. On the left was 14,000 patients from Wuhan, China, if a patient came in on a statin at the time they presented with a COVID infection, their mortality was cut down by over 40%. The second group was a meta-analysis of the world's literature of 9,000 patients. And if they came in on a statin at the time of their COVID infection, their mortality or complications in severe disease was cut down 30%. So when you see data like this, it's obviously retrospective. It wasn't a randomized trial. And you think, does this make sense? Were the patients with statins treated differently? Maybe they, the patients uh, without statin were demented and they didn't get the aggressive treatment that the ones with statins did. To answer that question, let's look at part of this. They showed that patients that were on statins were uh, about half as likely to be intubated, meaning that from the very beginning, uh, they were doing better. So they didn't receive better care than the patients that weren't on statin. The next question you ask, is this just purely chance? Maybe it was just happenstance that the patients on statin uh, actually did better. And is there a pathophysiologic mechanism behind it that can explain why they're doing better? Well, one of the papers tried to answer that question. They looked at CRP, which is an indicator of uh, inflammation. And they found that the CRP was lower in patients on statin than those on statin. And the second is that the statin survivors had a lower CRP than the non-survivors. So this hypothesis is that statins, which we know lower inflammation, may actually be beneficial, and this fits with the data that they presented here. So I have used this many times in the last couple of weeks to encourage patients to take a statin, which isn't always easy. Next, what are the effects on the heart? This has gotten a tremendous amount of lay press, all the way from the sports world to the uh, political world. And let's look at some of the data. If you look at COVID-19 and the association between cardiac injury and mortality, there's clearly a correlation. Uh, this is more data from Wuhan and found that patients that came in with an elevation of troponin in more than half the people that died. And what's interesting, if you look at the time points here, you can see that the troponin starts out mildly elevated, but at about three weeks, 21 days or so, it starts to really rise up, and that's when the, uh, that certainly correlates with mortality. Now, looking at different comorbidities, we kind of get the same picture. And this is a time-dependent scale, meaning on the x-axis is the time to the endpoint, which was either uh, intensive care unit, uh, ventilator, or death. And you can see this is based on the number of comorbidities. If patients had no comorbidity on the bottom, two or more comorbidities on the top, and the comorbidities are listed on the left. One of them is uh, cardiovascular disease. Uh, there are others listed. And you can see that if you come in with no comorbidity, 
your risk of uh, complications are lower. The more comorbidities you have, the higher it is. But again, you see this time-dependent scale. At about three weeks, it starts to occur. And this is probably that's the cytokine storm that we've heard so much about. So we're painting a picture for the more comorbidities you have, the less likely you are to practice preventive behavior and the more likely you are to have complications if you do get an infection. Now, how do we find these patients? How do we diagnose these patients in the hospital? I work in the, uh, we have a cardiovascular emergency department consult service where we see patients immediately in the, in the ED. And there, the data has shown that the mortality of patients can be predicted with two things. One is, do they come in with underlying cardiovascular disease and do they have elevated troponin? Here you can see that if a patient comes in and has no history of cardiovascular disease and a normal troponin, their mortality is much lower at 8% over the next uh, six or eight weeks. If they have CV disease and normal troponin, it goes up a little bit. Then if they have troponin alone, but they don't have cardiac disease, their risk is higher. But the highest risk group is the patient that has both cardiovascular disease and elevated troponin. Again, showing us that the underlying issue of having pre-existing cardiovascular disease really puts these patients at so much more risk. And again, uh, preventive cardiology uh, is gonna be so much more important, I think, in the future for preventing these types of events from happening in these patients. So coronavirus uh, 2019, the proposed mechanisms, why are these patients having more problems? Well, the cytokine storm we mentioned, which causes uh, problems with hypoxia and type two infarcts where patients get elevated troponins, not because of plaque rupture, but because the patient uh, is hypoxic and has heart failure. There's inflammatory plaque rupture. That's the standard thing we see with heart attacks. That isn't that common with this disease. It doesn't appear. Stent thrombosis can occur, certainly if a patient's had a recent uh, stent placed in their coronaries. And then there's a systemic uh, endotheliitis. So the endothelium is inflamed diffusely, which can cause multiple problems, plaque rupture, hypoxia, et cetera. And autopsy cases have also recently shown that some of these patients have SARS-CoV-2 viral particles in their myocardium, so it can cause a myocarditis, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, what about the cardiovascular complications in hospitalized COVID-19 patients? Again, a meta-analysis just out in the last few days. If you look overall, there aren't that many cardiovascular complications in here in almost 80,000 patients, maybe 15% on average angina, arrhythmias, myocardial injury, acute heart failure, myocardial infarction, and other cardiovascular complications. And you can see it isn't that common, but that clearly in this study, they tracked the pre-existing cardiovascular comorbidities and the risk factors significantly predicted cardiovascular complications. So let me just state that another way. The, the cardiovascular risk profile that we use from the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, looks at hypertension, looks at smoking, looks at diabetes, and looks at lipids. That risk profile predicts cardiovascular complications. So it not only predicts disease, but it predicts the uh, complications from uh, COVID infections. To try to get at really how many patients are affected, a recent article looked at the use of cardiac magnetic resonance imaging in patients that had COVID and compared it to other patients that didn't have COVID and said, what are we seeing with, with cardiac MR 
that may tell us something about how much, how many of these patients are affected. It's very interesting results. Of the 100 patients that had COVID, 78 of them, or 78%, uh, had abnormal cardiac MR findings. And this was done after the infection, a certain amount of time. Their T1 spin, and T1, uh, just for those of you that may not be familiar with cardiac MR, if T1 signal is increased, that is a, represents diffuse myocardial fibrosis and or edema. And 73 of these patients had that. Increased T2 signal, which indicates edema, about 60 patients. Patients that had both, that indicates an active inflammatory process. That was 60 out of 100 patients. And then LGE, which is the late gadolinium enhancement, indicates scar. That was about a third of patients. So it's interesting that if you look at cardiac volumes and ejection fraction, they were only mildly uh, decreased in these groups. Uh, but we see a different story when we look at the, at the gadolinium and look at the MR imaging. It indicates many more patients than we thought. Remember I said that only about 15% of patients have cardiovascular complications in hospital. This is a mismatch between what the MR is showing us and what the patient's clinical scenario is showing us, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then about 22 patients had pericardial involvement, so it indicates maybe a mild pericarditis. So if you look at the same paper, the same cardiac MR findings, you can see the COVID-19 patients are on the left column, the healthy controls are in the middle, and then the risk factor matched COVID patients are on the right. Now the risk factor matched mean they didn't have COVID, they just had the same cardiac risk factors as the COVID patients. And the left ventricular ejection fraction was normal in all groups, but it was clearly lower in the COVID group. And if you look at the T1 signal, the first number is the anybody that had an abnormal signal. The second number is the upper tertile, so severely, uh, significantly different. You can see that there's quite a few in the COVID group, very few in the healthy controls, more in the risk factor match patients that didn't even have it, didn't have COVID. Abnormal T2, again, that's specific for edema. Same kind of scenario that uh, patients with COVID are much more likely to have it. Healthy controls, almost none of them. And the late gadolinium enhancement, uh, indicating again a, a scar, uh, much more common in the COVID group. So again, the picture it's telling us is that these patients with COVID-19 are having much more cardiac involvement than we really thought. So what does the study tell us? You know, unlike previous studies, here there's a significant cardiac involvement which occurs independently of the severity of the original presentation. So the clinical scenario and the cardiac involvement don't really match. Next, I think that we have to realize is that our standard way of assessing heart patients, you know, cardiac volumes, cardiac function, ejection fraction, that may be an inferior way to look at this disease, meaning COVID-19 effects on the heart, uh, when we compare it to what we see with cardiac MR. So if a patient comes to you after a COVID infection, say, doctor, how's my heart doing? I think we now need to say we, we, we really should consider doing an MR on this patient before we can tell them what effects are on the heart. This also indicates there's a considerable inflammatory burden going on in the heart, even in patients that uh, are out of the hospital. And remember, a significant number of these patients were never hospitalized. And then last, the long-term effects are unknown. What does this mean for six months from now, three months from now, a year from now? We don't know. But clearly there's something going on here. We need to track these patients and as we learn about them over the next few years.
So is there a silver lining in this COVID cloud? Have we learned something from this? And hopefully so. This is a picture of me in the emergency department. We've started, been much more aggressive with our audiovisual connected care visits that we do here at Mayo. Uh, this was two other emergency rooms within the Mayo Health System where we can uh, contact patients. We've uh, taken this, now we do this for outpatients all the time, uh, talk to our patients, and patients have learned a lot from this, as have we. And what the patients have learned is first, is we're telling them that COVID-19 is a big deal but still the number one killer of people in 2020 is going to be heart disease. So don't forget about your heart disease. And I've already shown you that the heart disease makes you at more risk for having COVID-19 complications. So pay attention to the things that, we, that we've talked about even pre-COVID. So we've also always asked patients to monitor their blood pressure and daily temperature. We're starting to ask them now to weigh themselves daily check their blood pressure three or four times a week, check their waist size a couple of times a month. Uh, these are things that patients never really used to do and they're much more likely to do it now, uh, I think with COVID, which I think is a very good thing. We've asked them to check their blood pressure, uh, get a cuff that you can use at home. Some of these uh, blood pressure cuffs will Bluetooth over to your smartphone. It'll record it, it'll list the blood pressure, it'll average it, it'll graph it, it'll email it to your provider. And everybody has one thing with them all the time, except maybe when you're in the shower, and that's your smartphone. <laughs> and so uh, if you put all the data there, you don't need to worry about writing it down or losing a piece of paper. So we really encourage patients to do this. And remember, we tell patients that their heart beats 100,000 times a day. Even minor elevations in blood pressure has a huge effect on your heart, huge, because it's multiplied 100,000 times. So, you know, so please encourage your patients to start monitoring these things. Diet is extremely important. One of the things that I've sent out easily uh, hundreds of times in the last few months is our Mediterranean diet shown here. We have 14 things we ask people to eat less of or more of. Uh, they get a point total and they can tally it up. This is a great time. It's a teachable moment. Patients are at home. Uh, some of these um, services that mail you food that you cook at home, you can't order them anymore. They're so busy, <laughs> they're out of stock. But patients are cooking at home. This is a great time to learn how to cook, learn how to eat healthy. Um, as shown here on this uh, Mediterranean diet plate, which not only reduces heart disease, it lowers stroke, it lowers Alzheimer's, lowers almost all cancers, reduces diabetes, reduces erectile dysfunction, and also reduces uh, arthritic pain because uh, it's an anti-inflammatory diet. So it helps a lot of things. It's a great time to get patients started. Our dietitians have made up uh, uh, dietary plans and meal plans. Here's a list of 100 calorie snacks we send out and ask patients to make. Everyone is sitting at home. Uh, COVID-19, as we all have heard the joke, is the 19 pounds we've gained since COVID started. It, um, we're trying to get patients now to, to really take care of themselves. There is data, as you are all aware, that came out in the year 2000 that said by the year 2020, one third of Americans would be obese. When I saw those maps, I thought there is no way this is going to happen. There is no way a third of the country is going to be obese by the year 2020. Well, guess what? It's come true. <laughs> a third of the country is obese. Now the maps and the predictors show that by 2030, in just 10 years, 50% of America will be obese. 
When I look at these maps and this data, I say there is no way this is not going to happen. No way. We are clearly going to be half of us obese. And by the year 2050, a third of us in the United States will have diabetes. Why do I say this is going to happen? Because we look at prediabetes, which as you know is the spectrum from overweight to obese to diabetes, prediabetes and diabetes and metabolic syndrome. If you look at our youth, age 12 to 18, adolescents, one out of five now has prediabetes. You look at the young adults, age 19 to 34, one out of four. Look at the young adults like over age 35, one out of two. So as you see this happen, and it will happen, believe me, over the next few years, as it happens to our youth, it will continue. The, that data has been very clear. We begin our eating habits uh, before we can talk, and they live with this the rest of our lives. So 86 million people in the United States now have prediabetes. Do they all know it? No. Maybe one in 10 know it. So less than 9 million people are aware of it. And if they're not aware of it, they can't do anything about it. And this comes back to COVID. We all need to help our patients understand this because it increased their risk of significant complications uh, with COVID. And COVID may be here for quite a while. What about the, the comorbidities? We talked about that a minute ago. You know, having no comorbidities is helpful if you have a COVID infection. And in Italy, I've showed you a lot of China data, but here in Italy, you can see that the 99% of their COVID patients who died had at least one comorbidity. In the U.S., the comorbidities uh, were, patients with comorbidities were 12 times more likely to die than those without comorbidities. And nearly 50% of the patients in the U.S. that died had three comorbidities. So even small changes in our lifestyle in reducing our comorbidities like hypertension, like obesity, smoking, uh, can help us if, if and when the next COVID comes. Now, is there any non-COVID news? If you look at the journals, it seems like there's not. Almost everything is COVID, but there is some non-COVID news I just want to pass on. First is, uh, if you look at patients with coronary disease and statin use uh, versus those with cerebrovascular disease and peripheral arterial disease. Now, we know that those three groups of patients, CAD, peripheral vascular disease, and cerebrovascular disease, their risk for cardiac events or cerebrovascular events or PAD events over the next three years is just about the same as you can see on this graph. And this is a, a graph compiled of data from 750,000 patients. But if we look at the statin use, we can see that the CAD only patients, more than half of them get statins. Cerebrovascular may be 43%, but the peripheral arterial disease may be a third. So PAD patients are less likely to be treated with statins though their cardiovascular risk is the same. So this is something that we've suspected for many years. We need to start being more aggressive, I think, in treating these patients with statins. The other thing that's of, very, of great interest, I think, is some VA data that looked at statin benefit in patients over 75 years of age. And in this group, uh, they started statins, this is a, from the VA hospital study, they started statins on men primarily, about 90% were men, 10% women, uh, on patients that had no cardiovascular disease, and they were over age 75. In fact, their average age at onset, or giving the first statin dose, was 81 years old. And you can see that statins were beneficial, in, and this is now in primary prevention, in this age group. And it reduced in the first year uh, all-cause mortality by a third, 
and uh, cardiovascular mortality by about 30%. These medications were helpful for about six or almost eight years by giving them to them. So by the time they were almost 90, the benefit wore off, but by that time, other events had occurred. So we shouldn't ignore giving statins to this age group if they do not have disease. I think the data is clear that it benefits them. And then getting back to the future with this, um, if you look at other things, other diseases we're worried about as we go into the fall, it's obviously the seasonal flu virus. And if you look at the risk factors for severe disease with seasonal flu, it's very similar to what we see with COVID, as you can see here. Obesity, underlying cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, diabetes. All these things are very similar in the two groups. So it may be that SARS to CoV may go away at some point in the future, though it may stick around for a few years. But clearly the influenza syndrome that we have every year, every fall, is going to continue on. So I think we should continue to encourage patients uh, to change their lifestyle. Uh, and I ask patients to help themselves uh, prevent uh, the flu every year because it can be just as deadly, uh, not as frequent, but it can be uh, certainly lethal in some patients. So that brings us to the flu vaccine to finish up. Does flu vaccine reduce death in MI? Now, flu vaccine will be coming out usually October uh, November in the United States. Uh, they try to figure out which flu viruses and strains are going to be coming. And if you look at prior data, that uh, retrospective data, that patients that got a flu vaccine, they reduced their risk for hemorrhagic stroke by about 50% over that flu season. They reduced their risk for primary cardiac arrest by about 50% reduce secondary acute coronary syndromes event by about two-thirds, so patients that have coronary disease really benefit. And finally, there's been one prospective study uh, done in, primarily in South America that looked at death, non-fatal MI, and rehospitalization in patients given a flu vaccine that were priorly, had previously had MI or angioplasty, and it reduced their risk by 50% and reduced their death risk by about 75%. So I ask my patients every year now to get a flu shot, not because I want them not to get the flu, but because I don't want them to have a heart attack uh, or have cardiac mortality, because it does prevent that. This data has been uh, encouraged and, and uh, written about and sent out by the American Heart and American College of Cardiology. Uh, still, the flu vaccine rate is less than half in this country, uh, but it can certainly help uh, reduce your risk of cardiac uh, events. And that's shown here that the pooled analysis of the effect of the flu vaccine on the risk of death uh, clearly reduces it, uh, the MI rate. It doesn't reduce revascularization rates, but it does reduce myocardial infarction rates. So to summarize, what are the key points? Preventive cardiology in the era of COVID is more important than ever to try to help our patients protect themselves proactively before they could get a COVID infection. COVID taught us how to help patients take care of themselves at home, weigh themselves, check their blood pressure, check their abdominal girth, which is one of the biggest predictors of cardiac events. The presence of CV risk factors correlates with unhealthy COVID behavior, which is really, I think, a take-home message for us and our patients to encourage them to really practice preventive uh, healthy behaviors so they don't get COVID. Uh, cardiovascular disease patients are the highest COVID complication risk, one of the highest mortality risks if they get it. The uh, complications from COVID track directly to cardiovascular risk factors. And then statins chronically taken seem to help 
prevent some of the uh, mortality and the complications from COVID. Remember, statins are underutilized in peripheral arterial disease patients, and they are, are, have shown to be beneficial even in the elderly, uh, even starting at, at age 81. Finally, don't forget to encourage a flu vaccine and tell your patient that it's going to help them prevent a heart attack, not so much because you don't want them to get the flu, and uh, help them understand the next, the best way to prevent the next COVID. And believe me, the experts are predicting this COVID may be here for a while, and if not, there'll be other, uh, I think, certainly viral diseases because the viruses mutate so frequently. They'll be coming along in the future. So this flu season thing that we have will be continuing on for years to come. Let's try to help our patients remember that. So I thank you for your attention. Good day. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to check out the links in the description box. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week 